There was a debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are two sects within the Jewish tradition, both leaders, both teachers, and their big separation, or one of them, was over the question of resurrection. Is there a resurrection of the dead? And you think, well, is that something we really need to debate about? Does it really matter? Is that that serious of a debate? And I would argue that it is. So the Sadducees say there is no resurrection of the dead. When you die, that's it. The best you can ever hope for is what's here in this life. But the Pharisees, for all of their failings, they see the rich tradition in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the dead. And so as we're looking at this kind of seminal passage on resurrection, I want to address some of those Old Testament passages, and they're going to be on your screen And so I want us to think about these and the importance of resurrection and the hope that was in a resurrection many years before Christ, many, many years before Lazarus. The first one comes from Job, probably chronologically the first book written in the Bible. Job 19, beginning in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Amazing words from Job, centuries before Christ. Psalm 17 also, verse 15, that closes out the psalm. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That is a beautiful description of resurrection. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Also Psalm 49, starting in verse 13, says this, the contrast of the death of the wicked and the death of the righteous Psalm 49, 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Uh, This is a place of banishment, not fully orbed death or hell. Um, A little more mystical than, than our understanding of hell. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Amen to that. Also, Isaiah 26, verse 19, says this. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. I don't know how the Sadducees can read that and not see resurrection. Uh, Then we get probably one of the most famous examples, and we read this this morning in our pre-service prayer, but I want to read it again because this is beautiful and it's pictorial, and even though it's very vivid, it has a spiritual reality with it as well. Ezekiel 37, I'm going to read this entire passage, and I want to just address a couple things. But this is a great promise to Israel because chapter after chapter of prophecies against them for their wickedness and their idolatries. In 36, we get this great new covenant language. And then in 37, we get the picture of this new covenant. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. 
The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many bones on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? This is a picture of what it means to be dead in your sins. Before resurrection, you are very dry. These bones cannot live on their own. And I answered, O Lord God, you know. If God ever asks you a question, that is your response. O Lord God, you know. Then he says to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Step by step, here's what he's going to do so that you know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones come together, bone to its bone. And I looked. And behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. And we know that through Paul, through faith, we are also spiritual Israel. And this promise is true to us. The next is in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Remember, Hosea is the book about the wayward Israel who is whoring after all these other gods in this picture of Hosea and Gomer. But what is the, the promise in chapter 6? Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Beautiful. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. This morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection and the life. This is the resurrection and the life in Hosea chapter 6. The last one is probably the most explicit in Daniel chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. He's talking about the end of the, the, the final resurrection. This morning we're going to talk about two resurrections. If you didn't know, the Bible does speak of two resurrections. So this is the second. Um, the, the passage in Hosea was the first spiritual resurrection. This is the second physical resurrection in Daniel chapter 12. And at that time shall arise Michael. The great prince who is in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. 
everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this morning, as we look at the theme of resurrection and this this biblical uh, thread that we see throughout Scripture, we're going to look at what it means to be resurrected. Because all will be resurrected as we saw in Daniel in the last day. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. But only some will be resurrected to new life in Christ. It is those who believe in him that will live and live forever. And we're going to work through that. And Lazarus is that prototypical example of what it means to be dead. Very dry, in the grave for four days, no hope of life. Nothing within himself that can breathe new life. Until Jesus comes. And resurrection is important because death is certain. Many times as Christians, we, we, we shy away from, from, from talking about death, spiritual death. We must remember that the gospel is not good news unless we understand that we are all dead in our sins. We are that valley of dry bones without the Spirit of God living in us. And without resurrection, you have no hope for the future. Without first the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope for any resurrection. That is why the cross is important. And then the resurrection of each and every believer. Because without Christ dying and coming to life, and us dying to our sin and coming to life, there is no hope. Therefore, resurrection is needed for the Christian life. And as Jesus will ask Martha this morning, belief in resurrection is needed for the Christian life. Because without belief in a resurrection, what hope do we have? This life is all there is, and then maybe question mark, I don't know. Isn't it much more comforting to have assurance that through Christ, those words of the Lord, when the Lord says, thus says the Lord, I am the Lord, I will accomplish it, that is the hope of his people. That he will finish what he has promised. Whatever he has begun in us, he will complete. And so our hope is in our resurrection, spiritual and physical. So now... With that as our groundwork, let's get to John chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Let's pray. Our God and Father, King of kings, Lord and Lord, Lord of lords, 
You sent your son into this world, fully God, to take on flesh, to fulfill all the requirements of the Messiah, fully man, live a perfect life and die on the cross so that his resurrection would mean our resurrection, so that his life would mean our life. Thank you, God, for our life in Christ Jesus. As we pray this morning, let us not just relegate the gospel to those who are dead and new believers, and it is true, but let those who trust in you now celebrate the gospel, celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ resurrected. Let us be like Paul. Let us know nothing but Christ and him crucified, resurrected to new life. I pray this morning that this would ignite anew in us our humility, our thankfulness at how gracious and merciful you are toward us. Dead bones, that you would send your son and give us your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, so we begin here in verse 17. Remember last week, Jesus is several cities away on the other side of the Jordan. Mary and Martha send messengers over, and they tell him, your friend is dying, the one that you love, and Jesus rushes right over. No. Jesus waits two days. And he says something profound in verse 14. Lazarus has died. And take away the suspense. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So they started off on their journey. The journey would have been several days. We don't know how long he was in the grave at that point. But we know that when Jesus approaches, before he even reaches the house of of mourning, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in his tomb four days. Now, interesting detail here that you probably don't know. I didn't know until reading this week. So there's kind of a, a piece of Jewish folklore that they believed that the spirit of the body after death hovered above the body for three days. So apparently the, the body is still suitable for the spirit to go back in it until on the fourth day when decomposition begins, then the spirit's like, nah, I'm, I'm good. I don't want to go back to that anymore. So there was this, this kind of superstitious belief that Within the first three days, resurrection was possible. Jesus comes after four days of Lazarus being in the tomb. So there's a description here that Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. Now this is an important detail because we uh, spoke about him being on the other side of the Jordan earlier. But this is key because seen throughout the gospel of John in the first 10 chapters now Jesus speaks about his time his time has not yet come his time has not yet come my hour is not yet come but we'll see in the first verse of chapter 12 that his hour is now come because it was six days before the Passover his final Passover that would become our Easter the last time that he would eat of his meal with the disciples And so this detail, that it was two miles outside of Jerusalem, is important for one, that Jesus' time is now coming to its close. It's now coming to fruition. Everything we've been looking at up until now has made its way back to Jerusalem for this final Passover. But also it's important because in this this Jewish festival, um, not festival, excuse me, this Jewish ritual of death and mourning, it was a seven-day process. 
And this, again, is in the Jewish culture, they don't do things small. They're very emotional people. They're, they're very demonstrative people. So when they mourn, they mourn out loud, and they cry, and they do it for seven days, and they dress in black, and they march through the streets. And any Jew who knew family, this was one of the, the highest good works that you could do, was to be with those who mourn. So anyone who knew them would come from Jerusalem. So this was a great gathering And we see that in verse 19. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this whole mourning process, without getting into too much detail, was a a great process. I mean, it was uh, a a big process and procession. They would march through the the city. The house would be cleared out of any furniture. There would be a cleansing that went over the house. It would be a house of mourning. There was cleansing that would go over each of the people. The tomb would be prepared. There was probably hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of spices and wrappings and all these things that would go on the body in, in our money. And there would be professional mourners who would be there. And anyone who knew them would come to pay their respects to the family. And so all these Jews are coming from all over, probably many from Jerusalem, but we can't forget that just a couple months ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem and they wanted to kill him. Trust me, they haven't forgot. So there's this extra level of tension now. Because even though it wasn't culturally appropriate to confront Jesus during this time, it would be very tense when Jesus shows up. And so that's where we find ourselves, right in the middle of this whole process, four days in, when Jesus meets Mary or Martha on the street. Verse 20, so when Martha heard, look at these action words, Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. If you remember the account of Martha in Luke chapter 10, she is a woman of action. Martha does not sit still. Martha is the the busybody that we always like to use as an example. She heard and she went and she met. Martha hears and she goes. But Mary remained seated in the house. And if you know anything about them, it reflects so perfectly with their personalities. Turn to Luke 10. I want to look at that for just a moment. So the book right before, turn to your left. Because I think every one of us identifies with each one of them to some degree. Either you are the, 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 the Martha who can't sit still and always has to be doing something, or you're the, the, the Mary who's always so reflective, internal, introspective, and not concerned with what's going on around them, but focused on the matter at hand. So we're in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now remember, this is Jesus' first encounter with them. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So of course, Martha, again, is the one who greets him. She's the one who's out front. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone? Doesn't that sound like a sibling rivalry? Like, Jesus, will you solve this for us? This argument's been going on for years. I work, she sits. Help me out here. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So the last thing we hear about Mary, if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, is that, or, excuse me, Martha, is that she's not too highly regarded. 
Oh, well, Martha's the uh, worker bee. Martha's, Martha's always busy. She can't appreciate the, the presence of, of Christ. But Martha should not be limited to her caricature in Luke 10. Some a couple of years has passed now, and we know from last week that Jesus loves them. There's this mutual love and, and respect, and we're going to see some growth in Martha here this morning. So hopefully her legacy does not end with the Martha, Martha scolding. So as Martha meets him in verse 21, back in John, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, you don't have to be there to hear the brokenness in her voice. We're going to know that this is a brokenness that she shared with her sister because her sister is going to say the same thing next week. Imagine the thought and the anticipation that is going on here with Mary and Martha. They send this messenger out. It's probably five, six days now since that messenger went out. Their brother's sick and he's not getting any better. Worse and worse every day. And they're wondering, when is Jesus going to come? Because we have no humanly hope. Lazarus dies and he's in the grave one day and they mourn. Two days and they mourn. Three days and they mourn. On the fourth day, Jesus shows up. Lord, if you were here earlier, this wouldn't have happened. If. She wishes that Jesus got there sooner. But in her immaturity, she doesn't realize that he's not restricted by her expectations or ours. And Jesus is not limited by his location. But of course, there's a simplicity here. If if you were just here, she would have lived. And there's a debate whether this statement is her being insolent or her being faithful. Like what kind of tone of voice was she using? And I, I don't want to get into that. But what I do want to address is this this tension that every disciple of Christ faces. This tension between lament and faith. Because at the same time, she is hurting over her brother. At the same time, she is mourning. But she also trusts. She also knows enough to send for Jesus. She knows enough to run to Jesus. She knows enough to attribute to him the power to raise her brother from his sickness. And that tension is one we can understand. And how often have we been to Martha? Lord, if, this, if you would have just worked yesterday. Lord, why didn't you do this then? If you would have just. I mean, I know that you're able. I know that you can do anything. But if you would have just done this yesterday, this wouldn't be happening today. Those of us who like to think of ourselves more of Mary can be Martha very often. She goes on to say, but even now, you see the lament, he's dead. But even now, I love this, the way she speaks, even now I know. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Even after four days, even now I know. Whatever you ask of God, she knows that there is something unique about Jesus' prayer life. I don't think she's fully worked out who Jesus is yet. I don't think she has a fully orbed Trinitarian view here. But she knows that there's something unique about the way that Jesus prays, his access to God, that he is a mediator. I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you this repetition of God. She places the right power to accomplish this miracle where it belongs, with God. Through the name of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of maturity in that statement. Even in an immature believer. 
I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And just a little peek at next week, if you look at uh, verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Oh, how Martha's words will be fulfilled in just a few moments. Lord, thank you that you hear me. I know that you always hear me, but it's for their sake that I say this out loud. Martha's a lot smarter than we give her credit for. And she has faith and understanding, yet it's still immature because she limits the power of Christ. Because she doesn't say to him directly, I know that you can do this. I know that you have the power within you. But she does kind of limit him. Uh, but I, I don't blame her for this. She's in the middle of mourning. I mean, think about the, the, the predicament she finds herself in, right? The conflict that's going on within her. She buried her brother four days ago. She was there. So in those days, if you died, they buried you on the same day because of superstition and decomposition and all that, and, and it was unclean to touch a dead body. So when he dies, there's this scramble. Now we've got to buy all of these ointments, all of these herbs. We have to put them on his body. We have to wrap him. We have to place him in a certain way within the tomb. And we've got to close the, the, the stone over the entrance of the tomb. This happened four days ago. And her flesh knows the reality of that. Her flesh has seen it. She's held her dead brother in her hands. She's anointed his body. But her faith knows that there is nothing impossible for Christ. Through him, there's direct access to God. So at the same time, there's this tension. She's fighting back the tears of mourning and living with the hope of faith. And man, as I was thinking about this this week, how often do we feel this, this tension? How often is there this tension within us, the, the, the mourning and lament over the brokenness we feel in our flesh? We're consumed so often with what we see and experience. I know that it happened right in front of me. But our faith is in the unseen. Our faith is in a God who lives outside of natural things. And so often what we see overcomes what we know to be spiritually true. There's no way that this could possibly happen. But yet we know there's nothing impossible for God. And so we war within ourselves the same way Martha does. And as usual, Jesus calms her fear, tells, you exact, tells her exactly what she wants to hear. Sort of. Jesus said, or excuse me, um, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Straight to the point. And again, Mary's no theological slouch here. Or excuse me, Martha, why do I keep saying Mary. Martha is no theological slouch here. Before she said, I know that wherever you ask of God, he will give you. She says again that I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. She rightly goes to what she knows. She has heard this Pharisee and uh, Sadducee debate, and she comes down on the eschatological side of the Pharisees. I know it's going to happen in the last times. I know there's a resurrection many years in the future of, of, of all the dead. I know it will happen then. But if you listen again, you can hear it in her voice. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Do you hear it? 
But what about now? I know he's going to rise again in the last day, but what about now? Humbly, she, sub- she submits to, to God's plan. I know there's a resurrection in the future. She almost sounds deflated. But what about now? I think this is another way that we can learn from Martha. How often are we guilty of the same thing? You say, well, I know that Jesus has paid for my sins, and I know that, that eventually I will have this inheritance with him, but right now I'm just waiting, and woe is me, and I'm, and, and I'm miserable. How often is our, the promises of God way too far off, off for us to apply them to our lives now? How often do we know far-off theological truths, but we miss the nearness of our Savior? The one who said, I will never leave you, never forsake you. We have greater promises than Martha, yet we are guilty so often of exactly what Martha does. Well, I know this will come up in the future. I know that there's promise to be with you in heaven for, in, in, and dwell with you, and I know there's promise that you're going to restore all things, but right now, woe is me. And right now I'm going to go through my life focusing on what's hurting me right now. And there's always this tension. There's this tension for Martha and there's this tension for us. Jesus again responds. And I love so often that when we are down on ourselves and we think so much about what we're dealing with and I'm hurting right now, Jesus, look at me, I'm mourning, you should pay attention to me. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I know there's a resurrection in the future. I am the resurrection and the life right now. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When Martha makes it about her, Jesus brings it back to him. And this is the gospel for us, too. When we make it too much about ourselves, that's why we will always preach Christ and him crucified here. Because our entire existence is, let's make it about us. But Jesus makes it about him. I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus brings the tension of the already and not yet right before her. We talk about this so often, but I want you to get this. Because at the same time, the promises of Christ that we have not fully taken hold of yet are true now. The already, that those who believe in him are resurrected to new life. And the not yet, that we will be resurrected physically and wholly one day in him. And this is one of the most important statements that Jesus will ever say. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I came to offer, not I came to, to, to give, but I am in my being I am resurrection, I am life. And if you understand this, you understand the gospel and you understand the need for it. Because if death is certain, and Jesus is resurrection and Jesus is life, there's no loopholes, there's no gray area, there's no plan B. This is it. I am the resurrection and the life. And this order is important. Resurrection precedes life. You must be born again. You must die to your sin. Sin must be put to death. Sin must be paid for before there can be life. There is no one who is alive enough to revive themselves from the dead. It's never happened and it never will. So I told you earlier that the Bible speaks of two resurrections. I could go through biblically and I just want to kind of graze the the surface with this. But there is 
a first resurrection, which is spiritual, in that whoever puts their faith and trust in Christ, just as Christ died and was resurrected to new life, so are we. Where is a spiritual resurrection that comes first? Only some will experience that spiritual resurrection. But as we saw in Daniel, and as we saw in John 5 and other places, everyone will experience a physical resurrection in the future. And only those who have gone through the first spiritual resurrection can stand before the throne on the second day of physical resurrection. Because only those who came to life in the first resurrection will live forever in the second resurrection. Because if you have not come to life in your spirit, your body doesn't have a chance. And when all the bodies will come out of the graves like we saw in Ezekiel, like we saw in in Daniel, like Jesus tells us in John 5, and like we see in in, in Revelation, they will all come and be judged. And in that second resurrection, you will either be judged by your works or Christ. So if you are not identified with Christ in that first spiritual resurrection, you are on your own in the second one. And God help you. But at that point, he won't. So she, Martha, rightly understands that there is this future resurrection. But she's still immature in her thinking and doesn't understand how that through Jesus there is resurrection in life. And how could she? This is the first time it's ever been taught. And so she's here at the genesis of this. But Jesus brings it to the more important spiritual resurrection. Whoever believes in me, it is belief that is tied to eternal life. It is not deeds. We will see in the second resurrection, it is not your, your body, what you've done with it. It is belief. Resurrection is required for new life. That's why the cross is the focus of everything we've done. And I said it earlier, and I will say it again and again and again and again. That unless Jesus Christ raised to new life, lives a new life, and by his life, we die to our old selves and live a new life, we have no hope. That is the cross. That is the message of the gospel. That is what Jesus is laying out here before them. In me is resurrection and life. And belief is essential to resurrection. It is the believers and no one else. Jesus does, again, there is no loophole, there's no plan B here. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Remember last week, in Christ there is no fear in death. Though he die, yet shall he live because of the resurrection. People put this blind faith in, yes, I, I, I trust. I believe in something. I believe that there's a better life after this. I did a funeral yesterday, and probably in the audience were mostly unbelievers. And as you hear people talk, oh, I know she's in a better place, and I know there's something better after this, and all these things. And I don't know the state of the woman who died. But I do know that many people there put their hope in life without having any understanding of a resurrection. And we've got to be careful when people speak of these, these generalities. It is not only blasphemous, it is dangerous to believe that you can live without being resurrected through Christ. And this is the belief of many people in our culture and many popular religions and many churches across the country. Preach a comfortable gospel that does not require any death at all, neither Christ nor ours. And that does no one any good. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the first resurrection, this spiritual resurrection. He goes on in verse uh, 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now the resurrection that is already true when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ now is true forevermore. The second resurrection. You will live forever. And again, in the Greek, this is the strongest language that can possibly be used. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I mean, this is literally never, ever die to the end of the age. Shall never die. You will never die forever. This is the strongest way to say this. Jesus is not mincing words here. Those who live, because they believe in me, those who are resurrected to new life, they will never, ever die. And it's easy to gloss over this. Look at the beginning of verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me. But we can read this, and anyone who lives in me and believes in me. Continual. This is not someone who prayed a prayer and walked an aisle one time. Whoever lives in me, whoever has their life and their being from me, whoever breathes my spirit, whoever believes in me, continual. Not just when it's easy. Those shall never die. Those who are resurrected spiritually will be resurrected physically. And they will never, ever die. But the reverse is also true. Those who do not live in me, and those who do not believe in me, they will die forever. The second death, as Daniel puts it, is eternal contempt. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. The separation from the presence and the grace of God. Living in eternal torment. Dying forever. The spiritually resurrected will live forever. The spiritually condemned will die forever. This is what's at stake. This is what Jesus lays out before them. And Jesus, as he does so often, demands a response. Because we can't read the teachings of Jesus and not know and not have a response. We can't read Jesus' declaration and say, okay, that's good. That requires nothing of me. It is nothing without a response. As Jesus does, so should we. What does Jesus do after laying this out for her? Do you believe this? Everything I just told you, the answer to life and death is in me, resurrection and life. Do you believe this? There is no gospel truth without a response. Not just some, hey, good stuff, put it in your back pocket and go with your day. Do you believe this? And so I have to ask you, do you believe this? Believers, I'm going to speak to you first. Do you believe this? I was convicted this morning as I'm preparing to preach how often I forget about the resurrection, about my own resurrection through Christ. How often I take that for granted. Do you believe this? How often that the same, I take for granted that the same Savior who redeemed me from the pit cares about what's going on in my life today. For those of you who don't know him, do you believe this? Because you have to ask yourself, if Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and there is no life apart from him, there is only death, do you believe this? Are you hoping for some mystical plan B? 
Maybe there's some good consolation prize to those who have done more good than evil in this life. Do you believe this? Because if you believe that, then Jesus is a liar. And anyone who tells you otherwise is calling Jesus a liar. We should not look so lightly on those who deny the resurrection of Christ or deny the need to be resurrected with Christ to new life. But Martha, who we usually use as the butt of jokes, but we usually don't refer to this passage when we think about Martha. But look at her response. Yes, Lord. Everything you just said, yes, Lord. And you know what? I'm taking what I know, those declarations I said about you. I don't just know about you. I know you. Because you said, I I believe what you told me, and I believe in who you are. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This perfect tense in the Greek is, I have believed it. It is something I believe, and it is something I still believe. I believe. Not just what you told me about resurrection. That is true. She believes what Jesus told him because of who Jesus is. I believe that because you are the Christ. Because you are the Son of God who has come into this world. John's whole purpose in this gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, I wrote this so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God and you might believe in him. And through him you've had a life everlasting. Martha fits the, perfect, the, the, the purpose of this book to a T. And she takes that extra step from, I know that whatever you ask of God, I know that he'll be raised in the last day. She took what she knows and she applied it to her heart. I believe. And she takes all her theological facts. And even though her flesh struggles and she's in the middle of lament, she applies them by faith. It, what a great lesson for us, right? We don't have to know all the theological truths. We don't have to have them perfectly right. We, we don't even have to be able to understand them but we put our belief in the one who has fulfilled them. We don't always have to respond the way we should. Martha certainly doesn't. She had an immature faith, but she put her faith in the resurrection and the life. And so her faith has made her well. She believes at the most difficult time. And this should be her legacy, not busybody Martha in Luke 10. But Martha, who says, yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into this world. And that should be our legacy. Not whether we're Martha's or or, or Mary's and all the mistakes we make along the way, but our confession. What do we confess? Because it's not just enough to speak facts about God. You must believe them as well. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 10. Go to books forward into the Bible. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Paul says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. These two things must go together. They only came out of Martha's mouth because they were in her heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel. Even in the midst of her lament, Martha was known by her faith. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. The resurrection and the life leads to salvation. Your mouth confesses what your heart believes. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who come to him. Those riches are a spiritual resurrection to new life and a physical resurrection that will lead to life everlasting. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at these two things together. This is a woman who by her faith in Jesus Christ, eternal life is hers now. The already of her faith in Christ has given her all of those riches that are promised to her, has given her release from that second, uh, that, that second death, the, 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 the final judgment, and she makes this beautiful confession. And this is where many people who profess Christ with their, their lips get themselves into trouble. Because we've taught, sadly in America, we've taught people that if you do the right things and say the right things, that's all you need to do. We have many people who grew up in church and know many facts about Jesus, but don't know Jesus. They were raised in the church, and they, and they, they, they put their identity in these things that they say, but do they know him? If your heart is not connected to what you say, it is just empty words. We must remember that. Sadly, so many people, their mind may know, but their heart is never experienced. I want to break down confession just quickly, and then we'll close. She says three things here that are so beautiful in the way they're brought together. I believe that you are the Christ. This is his human title. This is his office. He fulfilled all the messianic expectations and prophecies. I believe that you are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. You are our sake. You are, you are our, our only help. You are our new federal head. Through you, we will live. You are the Christ, the Son of God. You are divine in nature. You are the Son of God. Fully man, fully God. I believe this, I know this, who is coming into this world. Draws it all together. She doesn't say who's born of a baby or born in, in a manger, who's, who, who remained a baby, who is coming into this world as active language. He is the sent one from heaven, fully God, fully man, sent into this world to save, to seek and save the lost, to bring resurrection and new life to those who confess what Martha confessed. I don't know enough. I don't believe enough. Confess that and believe that. Jesus Messiah, Son of God, come into this world to save a sinner like me. And if you confess that with your mouth and believe it with your heart, you will be resurrected to new life. Let that be the confession of our lips and our hearts. So hopefully this is helpful this morning as we talk about first resurrection, second resurrection. Jesus being resurrection in life, hopefully we can draw all this together but the most important thing out of all this is do you believe this do you believe this do you believe this when life is difficult today do you believe this if you would die tomorrow that you have no nothing to fear in judgment you have nothing to fear in the second death it's the most important question anyone can ever ask do you believe this i pray that you do let's pray lord there's nothing else that i can say You've told us that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son.
he is the resurrection and the life. He is our Savior. Because of him, we have resurrection and new life. Let us be emboldened by this. Let us be confident by this. Let us stand up tall by this. No matter what's going on in our lives, when we're just burdened with mourning and lament and fear, let us remember that through our faith, we are resurrected to new life. And if you're putting your faith in anything else, you're putting your faith in death. I pray that the Spirit will remind us of this continually, convict us of this where we fall short, and teach us to rejoice in this. To the glory of God the Father, to the name of Jesus the Son. Amen.